Bible holds together, especially around God's covenants that He makes with His people and how God's kingdom comes through these covenants. Uh, we are going to be moving into a new covenant today. So just as a reminder uh, from where we've been, we worked through the covenant of creation with Adam, then the covenant with Noah and all creation after the flood. Then we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, which is so critical to the whole storyline of the Bible. And then we spent several weeks on the covenant with uh, Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, so the Mosaic covenant, which is obviously huge to the Old Testament storyline. And uh, we spent weeks in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, places that are not often uh, tread on much, but uh, very important to understand the covenant uh, through Moses uh, to Israel. And today we're moving into the covenant with David. And I know by the looks of this, it looks like we're almost done with the series, but do not be fooled. Uh, the series is not, not close to being done. We, we've got a whole lot to unpack under that last covenant, the new covenant, uh, through, through Jesus to the church. So there, there is a whole lot coming after we get through the initial covenants. Our goal was to overview the whole Bible storyline through, the, through these covenants. And then as we get to Jesus, this is where things get uh, complicated, wonderful, controversial, where we see how these covenants converge and, and are seen through the person of Christ and into the era of the church. And so there's a whole bunch of weeks coming where we're going to break down individual topics and try to th trace themes through Scripture. Uh, so that we're excited about that. But in the meantime, the Davidic covenant is a great place to be. Yes. So Greg, can you pray for us and then we'll dive yeah. in? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for another opportunity to gather and study your word, Lord, especially to see how it all fits together, uh, how we make sense of the big story uh, Lord, we're thankful that you have shown us this uh, clearly in your word through uh, the covenants that uh, progressively unfold as we read. We're thankful, Lord, that you are committed to your, your kingdom and your promises, uh, Lord, to be carried through these covenants, Lord, so that we know uh, what you're doing uh, and where things are going. And uh, Lord, we're thankful that most of all, you have made these things clear uh, in Christ. Uh, Lord, he is our hope. It is all going towards him. And so, Lord, even as we consider this covenant that you made with David so many years ago, Lord, strengthen our hope in Jesus because of what we see today. Uh, so give us insight, give us wisdom, give us understanding, help Mark and I be clear. Uh, and we pray that we would know you and know your plan and our Savior better because of these few minutes together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we told you last week that our goal was to move from Deuteronomy, which we spent two weeks on, and jump ahead pretty significantly uh, today. So we're going to cover several books of the Bible in the next few minutes. At least that's our plan. And we, overview. Yeah, overview. overview. Excuse, excuse Quick me. overview. Cover Quick would overview. be a little bit too strong of a word to use. We're, we're going to just very much overview, and simplicity is key here yes. because uh, details complicate things, and for now, we're just going to oversimplify things. But you remember that the definition of kingdom we keep using is God's people in God's place under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. This outline, again, is going to be oversimplified. It's from Von Roberts' book, God's Big Picture. I think that there is still some basic uh, wisdom and help here for this breakdown. Again, you can quibble with this. Obviously, when it comes to the details, uh, we're going we're gonna to have, uh, you could quibble with it. But just in broad strokes, I think this is helpful. From the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, through the birth of Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, 400 years in Egypt, and then coming out of Egypt, do you see how the main focus here is the people of God? They're, they're being fruitful. They're multiplying. It's following the line. So the, the, the kingdom element focused on gen, middle of Genesis through middle of Exodus is particularly the people of God, Abraham and his offspring, the 12 tribes. And then God's rule and blessing. So his commands, his rule, and the possibility of blessing if you obey. That is, as we've seen the last few weeks, the second half of Exodus, a lot of laws. 
Leviticus, do we see a lot of laws in Leviticus? And then uh, Deuteronomy, uh, well, Deuteronomy come afterwards. They go through Leviticus here, and that, that's emphasized. You can still see elements of Deuteronomy would fit in this category. God's place or the land, remember Numbers? They're heading to the promised land, and they take a 37-year detour on the way there, right? About a 38-year detour uh, on the way there. So they end up spending 40 years in the wilderness, but the land is still the focus. And Deuteronomy is about how they are to inherit the land. If they obey, they'll be blessed in the land. And then uh, the book of uh, Joshua, which we'll look at in a moment in a little more detail, they, it's the conquest, right? They take the land, and they, they split the land up between the people. And then, this is really helpful. This is so simple and so helpful. I mean, I remember the first time I read this, I thought, that just makes sense. I had not thought of it that clearly. I really think this is correct. Is God's rule supposed to ultimately come, his rule and blessing going to come through a king one day? Yes. And this king is in the line of Abraham. It's, 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 it's going to be the Davidic king, we'll find out. Ultimately, of course, that's Jesus. But you see here, the book of Judges the theme of Judges, there was no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the whole book of Judges is we need a righteous king. And then the, what's the next book? Joshua Judges, Ruth. Ruth is all about the king, right? It's about finding the grandfather of King David, right? Uh, with with, uh, with uh, Ruth and Boaz. And then uh, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, is all about David and the Davidic line. So if you, if you just want to simplify it really simple, the breakdown of the kingdom, that's how you can break it down, and the king is just the dominating factor. Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, they're called kings for a reason, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So Greg, just any, any thoughts about, as we are overviewing this big idea here, can it be, I, I know it oversimplifies, you can always nuance this, mm -hmm. but why can it be helpful just to have broad strokes to kind of look at this and say, okay, here's a basic breakdown of how we put our Bible together in this way? Um, specifically in reference to the king, yeah, or just in gen like even broader than that. Maybe more, maybe even more broadly. Well, I mean, if we understand the kingdom, we understand what God is doing in the world. I mean, it. it, it again, we don't want to oversimplify it, but it really is that simple. Like one of the central themes, if not the central theme, um, is the kingdom of God. God having a people that he dwells with. I mean, originally, as we saw, that was the Garden of Eden. Um, we forfeited that. But God made us to dwell together with him under his rule and experiencing his blessing. I mean, again, we're speaking hypothetically here, but if Adam had obeyed, he wouldn't have experienced the curse of death. They wouldn't have experienced banishment from the presence of God. They would have experienced the presence of God, the blessing of God. Um, and so the whole Bible is really about God restoring what was lost in Eden, that mm -hmm. kingdom, that kind of proto-kingdom that they had there. And so if, if we don't get that kind of um, grid, that kingdom mm -hmm. grid of God seeking to have a people that he rules over, that they're experiencing his blessing. If we don't understand that, we can't make sense of why he's doing what he's doing. Why did God rescue Israel and take or rescue his people out of Egypt and take them to where he did? Because that's the place he promised where what would happen, where he would dwell with them. Um, why did God give the law? Well, because we're designed to live under his rule. Our, our, our flourishing in this world truly only happens if we are living under the rule of God. To be outside the rule of God is, is, is bad for us. It's, it's, it's deadly for us. Um, and so all that God is doing and giving things and leading his people where he does and saying what he says, forbidding what he forbids, like all of that is within the schema of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, and if we, if we don't keep that, that grid in mind, that, that, that dr kind of driving force, that this is what God is seeking to establish, if we don't keep that in mind, then it's neat stories. Look, God can do some great things. There's some great heroes and, 
you know, but why? Why is all this happening? Why does David eventually get victory over Goliath? Why does it matter? Mm-hmm. Well, God's seeking to establish his kingdom, and that helps explain all the details. That's helpful. So we're just, again, overviewing here, but we're using the theme of the king because we're going to look at David and then ultimately Jesus. So some of this is familiar. And just uh, I'll put these opening books of the Bible. And I'm just going to show some chapters I'm about to quote from real quick. So the, the, the chapters there in blue are the ones that we're just going to reference very quickly as we go. Some of these more familiar. Some of these are less familiar. But let's look. This is the one we've talked a lot about. Genesis 3.15. It's the first time the gospel is in the Bible. And you see here, the, the seed of the woman, he, uh, that's Jesus, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this coming serpent crusher. When you get to Genesis 17 through Abraham, we are told, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That's the first explicit reference to kings coming from the line of Abraham, and this theme is going to develop within Genesis. So look at the end of Genesis, the the line of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, uh, you know, Jacob also called Israel, is about to die. He blesses his sons. Remember the 12 tribes, and he gets to Judah, and he says, Judah is a lion's cub. Listen to the wording here. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who who dares uh, rouse him. Look at verse 10. The scepter, that's a king's scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So do you see? From Abraham's line through Judah, there's going to be an everlasting kingship where all the peoples of the earth will praise this individual. All the, all the people will obey this individual. Okay, well, let's keep tracing the theme. Jump ahead to Numbers 24. Remember Balaam, the crazy prophet uh, who's hired by Balak to curse Israel. As he goes to curse them, remember, he blesses them. And look what he says. Uh, Numbers 24, verse 2. Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Listen to this language. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who dares rouse him. Does that sound just like the lion of the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49? Then look at this. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Does that sound just like the blessing given to Abraham? That blessed are those who bless you, uh, cursed are those who curse you. Do you see here the lion of the tribe of Judah language from Genesis, and the Abrahamic blessing are being found together in one verse? And guess where they're heading toward? Guess what individual they're leading toward? Look at this verse 17, same speech from Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And then here you have, I think, the Bethlehem star. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter. That's a king, right? A scepter represented by the star. Uh, A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the head of Moab. Does that sound like the serpent being crushed? Does that sound like the one who will crush the serpent's serpent's head? So you have here a picture of a serpent. uh, uh, um, Here it's Moab, the enemies of God. Someone is crushing the head of the enemies. He is connected to Jacob and Judah, the Lion of Judah. He's also connected to the Abrahamic promise. We are getting a lot of information in the early books of the Bible that this incredible king is coming who is going to do something that seems beyond all imagining. Any thoughts about this kingly figure, what we're already seeing in these books, Greg? Yeah, it's, it's interesting if, if you, you kind of pay attention to it. There's like, we, we have the garden, 
And then we have all the events that lead up to God's call of Abraham. So it's like we're supposed to be asking the question as we read, always in the background, who is this seed going to be? Who is this serpent crusher, this one who's going to come and fix what got messed up? We're always asking, who is it going to be? When will he come? What's he going to be like? So as we follow the story unfolding in Genesis, we we finally get specificity when it comes to Abraham. So if blessing is going to come to the nations, that means in, in one sense, a restoral, a restoring of what was lost, um, a fixing of what was broken. If it's going to come through Abraham, then okay, we need to be watching Abraham and his family Mm -hmm. because somehow that blessing that we lost is going to come back through him. And then we get to, um, you know, Isaac and Jacob and now Judah. Judah. So not just anybody from Abraham's family, but somebody from this particular tribe, Judah. And we know, I mean, we knew it was going to be an individual, but even more so what we see in, um, is it Genesis, uh, Numbers 24, you know, a star, it's him. He says, I see him. We're, like mm-hmm. there's this, this specific individual now coming from the line of Judah uh, who's going to be this king, who's going to rule the world, kind of mediate these blessings that we lost through Adam's sin. Um, and so, again, it narrows down as we go. And as we're going to see today, not just anybody from the tribe of Judah, but a particular individual and his seed, his descendants, are going to be the ones who inherit these promises, are going to be the ones who bring these promises to pass uh, in God's time. That's good. So uh, this is not the most uh, beautiful looking chart, but at least it's accurate and helpful in some way. Okay. You're like, someone could have done a better job with that. I didn't make it. I just got it offline. Okay. But this is, this is helpful. This little box here is the, is the time period we're we're zooming over today. So you've got uh, Abraham, excuse me, Moses dies right around 1400 BC. Joshua takes over and the conquest takes place. They take in, they go into the promised land. Joshua, the book of Judges spans a long chunk here with various judges over uh, over the centuries who are increasingly messed up and evil and wicked and, and all kinds of things. The Lord is still merciful to use people like Samson on these other individuals. But you get through here, finally under Saul and David and Solomon, you have a united kingdom. And then after Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom and you have the divided kingdom followed by exile, restoration with uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that we looked, we, we looked at a few months ago in church. And then you, you have the 400 years of so-called silence and then the birth of Jesus. So we're, we're zooming right now over this period really quickly and we're going to spend some time camping out with David right around here, close to the year 1000 BC, which is when David receives the the incredible promise. So let's just zoom over this period a little bit more here for a few more minutes, and then we'll get to David more specifically. So the people have wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, and let's look at the book of Joshua. First, they enter the promised land, and uh, I'll stand back up here. Uh, let me just point to this. So they, they, Mo- Moses dies. They cross over the, 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 um, the Jordan River, and they take Jericho. And remember, there's the problem at Ai. And then they split. Eventually, they take the southern part of the land and the northern part of the land. And th- that's the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua. They're taking the land. And then for a lot of chapters, I will tell you, this is one of the hardest sections of Joshua to read, or really of the Old Testament to read, is these chapters for us, they're very tedious. They give you essentially boundary markers of all the places where the tribes were. And you're like, okay, like this is, is, I don't know what half these words mean and where these places are. I recommend, by the way, having a map when you read the section. And here you go. Just, just, that that is basically what those chapters are saying. So if you have a map next to you as you read, it really, really helps, especially if if you can have some specific markers of where places are. But that's where the dividing of the land takes place. This may bore us sometimes in our reading plan. I will tell you, it did not bore the Israelites because this is the very land God promised to Dan or Ephraim or Manasseh or Gad. And they want to know exactly the part that 
that God has given to them and their tribe to be their inheritance. So it, they would have on the edge of their seat as they hear the reading of the land markers. But that's what, that's what happens here. They divide the land, and then Joshua uh, gives his last charge to Israel where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know that section at the end of Joshua. Now let's get to Judges. In the first two chapters of Judges, Israel's sin cycle begins. And if you've read Judges, you know that chapter 2 spells the whole cycle out. If you read Judges 2, it tells you the whole cycle, and the rest of the book just does this cycle, like you're watching the, the, the washing machine and the dryer. Just go. This is, what, this is what you see. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Does that sound familiar with the story? Israel is oppressed, right? Foreigners come in, they're oppressed, they're going, things are going very poorly. Israel is humbled enough to what? They cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord incredibly, graciously, over and over, he raises up a judge to deliver them, right? And even though the judges are flawed, God still works through them in amazing ways to deliver them from the Philistines and whoever all it is. And then the, the judge dies, and Israel falls back into sin. And then they're oppressed. And then they call out for help. And God raises up a judge. They're delivered. And then the judge dies, and they sin. And you see this pattern goes on and on uh, through the book. So chapters 3 to 16 of Judges... It's just, you can see all the judges named here and approximately where they were. Uh, remember, the judges did not rule over the whole kingdom. They, they were just in little isolated areas throughout their time through these centuries. And you can see their names and what chapters they're in. But basically, judges get worse and worse. Chapters 3 to 16, including Samson there toward the end. And then uh, Judges 17 to 21. Uh, if, you have, uh, if you've read that at any time recently, I'll just give you one little sample of how bad it is. Judges 19... And Genesis 19 are parallel to each other. Genesis 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah and the horrific story there of attempted rape and other horrible things that happened. Judges 19 shows the people of God doing the exact same thing that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read Judges 19 after reading Genesis 19, you can tell that they're structured the same. I mean, it, it, there's attempted rape, a similar situation of someone uh, at a doorway with a door locked. I mean, it's a, it's a very similar scene. What's the point of that horrible story in, at the end of Judges? God's people have become no better than Sodom. That's the point of that story. Do we need a king who is righteous, who is good, who is just, who can deliver us forever from our sin? Yes. And so that's, J Judges is setting you up for that. As you know, the, the last verse... In the, those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which means everyone did what was wrong. And don't miss this. The book of Ruth, that great little short four chapters, begins like this, in the days when the judges ruled. So Ruth happens during this horrible time in Israel's history. And is there a little oasis in the desert in the midst of that evil? Yeah, Boaz and Ruth are an oasis of godliness in the midst of a wicked time in Israel's history. And as you know, the book ends... This is the point of the book of Ruth. It's not mainly about this love story, although that's a wonderful story. What's the story about? Ultimately, this is the point of the story. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The point of Ruth is we need a king, and Ruth tells you how the king came about. This is how David was born um, Greg, any, as, as we read a book like Judges, I'm just putting you on the spot here, but no, as, as, we, as we read Judges, it is a depressing, at times, mm -hmm. it's, it's very graphic, there's a lot of graphic uh, mm -hmm. violence in the, in the book, more so than usual, and uh, it's, it's just downright could be discouraging. What are we to take from all the horror that takes place within the book of Judges, and how do we think about applying that to ourselves today? I'm completely putting Greg on the spot right now. There's no, there's, there's no forewarning for this. I'm curious mm. what you might say. What do we take from that? Um, apart one, majorly apart from the grace of God, there go every single one of us. 
I mean, we, we have to be honest about that. If we know indwelling sin, we know mm-hmm. that, that principle of sin that still resides in every one of us. It doesn't matter. Even if you're a believer, you still have sin living in you, operating, trying to lead you away from God, trying to stir up in you things that don't please God. Um, and so we read that, and if, if we think, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I would never do that. Then we don't know ourselves as well as we do. Given the right circumstances mm-hmm. in the right context, we could let loose a whole lot of wickedness out of our lives onto the world. Um, so we have to be careful not to think that we're somehow better than Israel was mm-hmm. when we read these stories. Um, so it serves as a sober warning. This is where we could go. Um, and also, I think another thing is, you know, you mentioned the increasingly, mm-hmm. you know, you've got this cycle, but imagine like a spiraling yeah, down. downward spiral. Like it just gets it, 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 the same cycle, but the next time around, it's a little bit worse than the time before it. And then the time after that, it's a little bit worse until you get to two, two main things. You've got Samson, a judge who's supposed to be a righteous deliverer, <laughs> and he is just as wicked and a Canaanite as the, the people they're supposed to be dispossessing. I mean, he breaks, I don't know how many laws, mm-hmm. makes himself unpure, impure, unclean. Um, I mean, he just, he lives it up, does his own thing, and this is the guy who delivers Israel. He is not a sterling example of godliness. Like, he is, he is exactly what Israel is not supposed to be. And so you see the, the quality of the leaders devolves mm-hmm. and goes down, but also the quality of the people. Um, and I mean, I was, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Um, about that the, that incident at the end of Judges with the Levi and the it's concubine. It's hard to read that story. It, it is. It's, it's, it's grotesque. It's graphic. Um, but it goes to show, like, how, one, how much we need a Savior. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh my goodness. These are the people of God who have the law of God, and this is how wickedly they're acting. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we've talked about the need for a circumcised heart, something to, not, not just a law that, that, that puts external pressure on us saying, do this and don't do that. We need something to change in here that makes us actually want to do what God says to do and not want to do what God says not to do. Um, we can't manufacture that. We can't work that up. That's a, a sovereign, supernatural work of the Lord. Um, but also it gets back to the whole thing of a king. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was revolutionary for me when I realized that the purpose of the king in Israel was not just to lead, not just to, to rule, right. but to be the chief example of godliness. Right. Um, I mean, you think about, where's that, that, that slide? Deuteronomy? Um, no, the, the judges, the end of judges one that you put up there. There's no king in Israel. Yeah, um, right here. I mean, you think about the significance of, make, make, make the connection here. Let me, let, me, let me show you what I'm saying here. So in those days, there was no king in Israel, okay? Okay, there's no king, big deal. What, what's the outcome of that? Mm-hmm. It's this right here. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the point is, if there's a king, a righteous, who, king. A righteous king who knows God, who loves God, who's attempting to walk with God, this right here doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The king wields a massive influence over the people of God, a massive influence. Um, And one of the things, I think we looked at this last time looking at Deuteronomy, the king was to have a copy of the Mm -hmm. law of God written for him that he would read on a regular basis. And so if anybody was to embody faithfulness to God, obedience to God, it was the king. We need someone to lead us in righteousness. We, we, are, we are not trustworthy if left to ourselves. We're just not. 
Okay, so the, the whole point of a king is he's going to lead the people of God in righteousness and obedience and faithfulness to God. Think about um, the, the, whole, the whole sweep of, of um, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 oh, yeah. Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Um, you know, what happens when you have a righteous king? The nation does pretty good. The nation tends to not worship idols. It tends to not sacrifice their children in the fire. You get a wicked king who likes to do those things, who, is, as it says, did evil in the sight of the Lord, what happens? The, the people, people do fall. evil in the sight of the Lord. They do what's right in their own eyes. Um, and so the significance of the king in God's plan is absolutely essential. Like, we need somebody who can come and lead us, as you said, forever in righteousness. And so if the people are to model their lives after the godliness of the king, think, think about this. We talk about being like Jesus, right? Well, he is the king. And so if we want to you know, follow our king, that means we have to follow Jesus. So when we talk about you need to be like Jesus, we're just picking up on a theme that has already been there the whole time. Mm -hmm. Follow God's appointed king in righteousness. And that is exactly what Jesus leads us to do. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll just jump through here. First Samuel, very quickly. You know, Samuel's birth is the beginning of First Samuel. He's the last judge, technically, of Israel, and he's a great man. So this, it's a wonderful moment there. And you remember the, the ark is taken by the Philistines, and then it comes back after a few chapters. Then you have Saul's rise, and as the first king. Chapters 8 to 15, Saul's rise. Saul starts off in some ways as a decent king, and then as time goes on, you really have what we call Saul's fall. So Saul rises, and then he starts to fall morally and in every other way. In First Samuel 16 is when you have the David and Goliath story, and David really shows up. He's anointed, and he is, he, he, David has his rise here as Saul begins his fall. They, they kind of happen together. And so David continues to rise through the rest of 1 Samuel. Saul begins to try to kill David, chase David, uh, hurt David, throw him, you know, throw the spear through David, all that stuff. And the book of 1 Samuel ends, the last part, Saul goes to the witch of Endor to find out what's going to happen. Samuel's spirit comes back. He finds he's going to die the next day in battle. He and his sons, Jonathan, and the others, they all die in battle. That's the end of 1 Samuel. Now remember, 1 and 2 Samuel was originally one book. It was split for the sake of size into two smaller books. But 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul, and um, 2 Samuel begins with David's uh, early reign. And really, this is David's rise as king. The first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel is one of the high points of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And you see the turning point is David's horrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, that's 11 and 12. And then from there down, you have horrible sin in David's family. Absalom turns against him. There's, I mean, I don't want to go into all the details. You know the horrible stories that happen amongst David's children, rape of Tamar, all this horrible stuff happens. So you, you, these horrible events that take place in the later years. And David never becomes the man he once was fully. I mean, he, he, he repents, but just the glory is never fully brought back to the kingdom. And so we want to zero in on this first section, the early years of David's kingdom. And we just do this really quick. 2 Samuel 1, David is such a godly man, he actually laments over Saul and Jonathan. The very man who was trying to kill him, he laments over his death. 2 Samuel 2, David goes to Hebron, where he's anointed again as king over Judah. Chapter 3 says, David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul became weaker and weaker. 2 Samuel 5, uh, look at this. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. So if you look at the screen here again, this is uh, according to ESV mapping here. David's kingdom at the beginning of his reign is the darker gray area. Can you see? The, it's not hard. To, it's hard to see the difference. But the darker gray area is David's initial size of his kingdom. And you can see the reign at the end of his reign, the size of the kingdom at the end of his reign is the green area. So you see how it's expanded the borders quite dramatically. The Philistines have been largely subdued during David's reign. You can see the success of his, of his time as king. But I want to zero in on this. So... Um, 
David spent the first seven years and six months reigning from Hebron. And then the big moment comes, he takes Jerusalem. And for the next, how many years is it? Uh, 33 years. So yeah, 40 years total. For the next 33 years, David reigns as king from Jerusalem. And he's the first person to make that the capital. The kingdom is united around David. And uh, things seem to be very successful. They bring the ark in. You remember this? From Kiriath-Jerim, they bring the ark in, Uzzah touches the ark, he dies, and then they wait for a while, they bring the ark all the way to Jerusalem, which is obviously a big moment uh, in David's life. And Greg, you mentioned this, there's there's some significance going on here, because this is the first time you Mm -hmm. have an Israelite king in Jerusalem, reigning from Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. it's also the first time what is coming into town? The ark is, I mean, it's the visible symbol, symbol of God's presence with his people, and there has to be some significance to the, to the fact that the one who brings the ark, the ark of God into the city of God, is God's king. I mean, nobody, I mean, it had not gotten there yet, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's just fur, further highlighting the connection between God's reign through his chosen king and his presence with his people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, it's an amazing thing when you think about it. Um, the very symbol of God's presence doesn't come to Jerusalem until God's king brings it there. Um, and so, again, you're, we're making these connections uh, for God to dwell again with his people. We have to have a king. We have to have a place. Um, and we have to have a righteous king who's doing things God's way. Um, otherwise, God won't dwell with his people. And so there's just it's kind of anticipating a lot in that, but there's very, I think there's a lot of significance to the fact that it was David and yes. no one else who brought the ark to Jerusalem. Okay, now we want to zero in here on the remaining of, uh, remain, remainder of our time to 2 Samuel 7. And we may get to a couple other texts at the end, but we want to spend several minutes here on 2 Samuel 7. So you might want to turn there. This is, without question, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. When it comes to putting your Bible together as one story in, in light of God's covenants, this is one of the most significant chapters. And it's also told uh, in, in the Chronicles as well. So first, uh, 2 Samuel 7 is, is a tremendously important moment. It's the most significant event in David's life as far as his role in scriptural history uh, it, it takes place. So let's go ahead and start here. Uh, Greg, can you read the first three verses and we'll kind of break it down as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So you see here, David has received rest from the Lord from his enemies. Has the Lord made him successful, not just against Goliath, but against all kinds of enemies. He's been successful over and over. Remember Saul's favorite song about David? Remember the song that Saul just loved? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. You know, Saul just cherished that song. He just loved it when people sang the song. Saul became very jealous, but you saw God's hand was clearly on David in a special way, and David was just successful against the enemy. And here God has given him rest. He's been king for a number of years. He's reestablished the the capital in Jerusalem. The ark has come into town. This is a high point in Israelite history. And David says, you know what? The Lord's been in a tent the whole time. We need to make him a temple, a stable, glorious place for him to dwell with the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, Nathan the prophet says, hey, do what's, all, what's in your heart. Sounds like the Lord is with you. And uh, they mean well. Of course, Nathan had not actually spoken. Uh, the Lord had not actually spoken to Nathan. So let's keep going here, Greg. Verse 4. All what right. happens? Uh, maybe the, read the next uh, four verses. All right. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. You know, Greg, can we, can we finish this whole long paragraph? Because yeah, I think, hold, let's hold it all together here. Verse 17? Yeah, down right, to 17. Let's do it. Um, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Greg, can you help break down a little bit what the Lord is saying to David here? What, what does this mean? Um, yeah, so obviously, you know, David has this desire, and it's, it's not an ungodly desire. It's actually, it's a good thing what he wants to do. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. Um, he wants to build a house, a permanent house for God to dwell in in Jerusalem. Because um, again, David's like, look at this nice place I'm living in. God doesn't have, you know, he's, it's, a, it's a movable, mobile, uh, mobile tent. I want to give him something. Um, and God comes back and basically says, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I almost chuckled when we're reading this. You know, it's like God saying to David, David, when did I ever ask anybody in Israel to build me a house? Like show, show me where I asked somebody to do that. I've been going all over moving in this tent. When, when did I ever ask somebody to do this? I mean, the answer is obviously he never did. God never commanded that they build a permanent temple mm-hmm. like that, uh, that David wanted to do. And so uh, God's like, you know, I, I don't need that. I, I'm not dependent on that. I mean, one of the points of the tent of meeting, y'all, is, is that God's not bound to one location. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the, the mindset that so many nations fell into in the surrounding areas is their God was bound to wherever his temple was. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, is intent on showing his people, I'm not bound to any one location. Remember, no gods leave their nations to go to other nations and rescue people and go to war with those gods. That's what I did in Egypt. I left my land and I mm-hmm. went to a different land. I beat their gods and then I brought you back to my land. Gods don't do that. God, our God is not bound to any one location or any one building. And so, you know, God's kind of like, look, David, I, I don't need what you want to build me. So what I'm going to do instead of you building me a house, 
I'm going to build you a house. This is, this is the best thing. It's such a neat play on words here mm-hmm. because the word house can refer to like a physical building, a dwelling place, but it can also refer to like a dynasty, yeah. a, a line of descendants and a, and a, with a particular blessing and a particular purpose. And so what God tells David is, look, you're not going to build me a house, David, but I'm going to build you one. Um, and, and this house that I'm going to build is going to be a house of kings. It's going to be a house in which your son, who comes from your body, which is interesting, that's what God told Abraham too, one from your own body will do this. It's not going to be somebody from out there. It's the one I told you. So there could be a connection there. Um, And so he's like, someone from your own body, one of your sons is going to rule as king. Okay? Uh, But not just one of them. Like, look look at the language here. This is where this gets so significant. Look at verse uh, 13. He shall build a house. Yes, your son's going to build a house. And then look what he says. I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Now, we, we have to stop and ask. Nobody lives forever. Like all human beings are going to die. So how is this possible? Is it just going to be an unending line in perpetuity of son after son after son after son after son, like, you know, forever? I'm not sure if that's exactly how he wants us to take this. Because that forever kingdom, he says it again in verse 16, your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Can I, can I get into the next section? Yeah, um, yeah, Because yeah. I, I have to, like, David, so what David does, God makes this promise, um, and David goes before the Lord in prayer after this, and he's, like, thanking God, he's praying, he's overwhelmed, like, you know, he's blown away like we would be. Um, and i got to find this. Look at um, verse 19. David understands the magnitude of what God is saying. He says, this was a small... Well, I'll just start verse 18. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. And so David is making the proper connections here that what God is promising to him is going to be bigger than the nation of Israel. It's going to be. It's instruction for mankind. Mm -hmm. What God is promising to David has implications for the whole world. For the whole world. Um, And so David understands that his kingly line and, and, and somebody at some point is going to rule not just over Israel, but over the globe like over everyone, everywhere. This is going to be a king with a kingdom that is global. And I mean, if, if that doesn't start sending off, setting off alarm bells in our head about Jesus and his kingdom and all the other places in Scripture where it talks about God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion one that will not come to an end, that, that truth about God as the sovereign ruler is going to be expressed in and through an individual from the line of David. So God's going to reign. He reigns as God, but he's also going to exercise his reign through a human king. One from the line of David. Oh, you, you go. No, no, that's fantastic. That's excellent stuff. I, I, that's really well said, and I, I think that's exactly right. So this idea of the blessing of Abraham coming through his offspring is going to come through a lion from Judah, 
which is a descendant of Jesse and David and Solomon. This is going to be some kind of anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, who's going to come from the line of David, who's going to restore blessing to all those who bless Abraham and his offspring. He's going to restore universal blessing to all peoples. He's going to reign forever. He's going to restore Eden in some sense. I mean, you, you, you got to see how... We're not just reading some sort of New Testament add-on back into the Old Testament. Do mm-hmm. you see how it's actually in the Old Testament? It's not just like we're, we're looking at something that was added by Paul or Jesus and we're looking back. No, is this in the organically built into the storyline from the beginning? Mm-hmm. Yes, universal reign and blessing, restoration of Eden, that's all there from the beginning. The serpent crusher. And we're just simply seeing it unfold and David is uh, humbled. I just have to say this is not the main point. But verse 18, when David went in and sat before the Lord, he just heard all this. And he goes in and sits before the Lord. His reaction is awesome. When he says, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? I mean, we should all talk like that when it comes to our own salvation, right? When it comes to what God has done for any of us, we should just collapse onto the floor and say, Lord, who am I? Like, I am nothing. I am no one. Who am I that you would show such grace grace and kindness to to someone like me? Okay, we've um, we've got eight minutes. And uh, I think we're good. I think we're good. We're going we're to skip ahead. Let's go to Psalm 72. So th- this is a tremendous psalm, uh, great messianic psalm. And I-, I will just tell you, as you think about the Davidic covenant, let me, let me just, may- maybe you already do this, but I want to challenge us all to do it more. When you read the, the book of Psalms in particular, be on the lookout for this theme of the Davidic king which is just a dominant theme through the mm-hmm. Psalms because David's a main writer, but also just the theme of the Davidic king is massive. And, and here it is uh, very clearly in, in Psalm 72. Let's just read a few things. Here. I'm, I'm, we're going to borrow some points from Stephen uh, Wellam and Trent Hunter. And I'll just, I'll put them on the screen here, the points that we'll look at briefly. So according to Psalm 72, the rule of the greater David, the son of David will be number one, righteous, Eternal, number two, number three, universal, and four, compassionate. Are those all things that we've already seen so far? Yeah, in the storyline, but Psalm 72 spells it out more explicitly, and we, I mean, we, we can read at least par- portions of this. Greg, can you read the first, uh, how about read the first four verses? Let's, yeah. let's look for the theme of righteousness in this king. All right, Psalm 72, verse 1, a, song, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Now, does this fit with what Greg was describing earlier, that the king must have his own copy of the law of God and study it day and night? Remember Deuteronomy 17? That he might be faithful to do all that is written therein. He's supposed to be the Psalm 1 righteous man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night and becomes like a tree. That's supposed to be the Davidic king and if we have a king like that, the people in general are going to follow that king as God works in their hearts. They're going to follow that righteous king. So again, here we see confirmation that that king is a righteous one. Can you read Greg 5 to 7? Yeah. It says, may they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. What's the next theme? It is eternal, right? Until the sun doesn't shine, until the moon is gone. This is a way of speaking of everlasting, right? He is going to be there throughout all generations. Uh, It says in verse 5, while the sun endures as long as the moon. This is a way of saying it's a forever reign. It's an eternal reign of this king. And uh, Greg, can you read 8 to 11? Yeah. 
May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So do we see the universal reign? It includes people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All nations will serve him. All kings fall down before him. Revelation 21, the end of the chapter, the kings of the earth bring in their treasures into the new Jerusalem. That, that is a fulfillment in Christ. And don't miss there. Verse 9, his enemies will lick the dust. That is not an accidental reference to the serpent licking the dust in Genesis 3. Is this a reference to someone who's going to crush the serpent and his enemies will lick the dust? It's, it's serpent-like language that's being used here. This king will, will, will bring down his enemies who are followers of the serpent or seed of the serpent who will lick the dust like their father the devil. And Greg, finally, uh, verses 12 to 14. Yeah. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. So again, we need a king who is gracious. Not just, if, God, if Jesus was just righteous but not compassionate, we would be in enormous trouble because we would all be condemned. Mm -hmm. So we need a king who is righteous but also who is incredibly gracious and forgiving and compassionate. And here he has pity on the weak. What is the word? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Jesus' most common word for his emotions. He felt compassion on those who were in need. So Jesus is marked by this pity, this love, this compassion for the weak and the needy. He saves those who are needy. And Greg, uh, read for us verse uh, 17. Yeah, verse 17. And tell us the significance of it once yeah. you read it. All right, so I'm going to read this. Keep in the back of your mind Genesis 12, when God said, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He who blesses you I will bless. Him who curses you I will curse. It says, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Here's the significance of this. God's covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in and through God's covenant with David. Mm -hmm. That's huge. The New Testament authors were very aware of this. Okay? Um, it clearly underlies everything that Paul says about Jesus as the seed of Abraham to whom the promises were made. Um, the progress of the covenants here is clearly biblical. It's progressive, moving from one covenant to another. Um, how is it that Abraham's blessing that God promised, how is it going to get to the nations, to the families of the earth? It's going to be through this particular son of David being talked about here. And you think, son of David. What did the blind people call Jesus? Son of David. Have, there was a recognition in the Gospels mm -hmm. that Jesus is the son of David that was promised, who was going to bring all these promises to their fulfillment. And so we talk about the narrowing down. Um, not just of, the, of who this Savior is going to be, but also God's blessing coming. How is it going to come? Well, through Abraham and his family. Now, um, through, you know, through, through Judah, through, through David, and specifically through this son of David, the nations will be rightly relating to God again through one person, and that's the son of David who we know is Jesus. Oh, amen. And in case you missed the connection that Greg is saying here, just look again. This is the son of David. It says, may, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And just to recall Genesis 12, 3, the covenant with Abraham. Look here at the wording. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see how, I love what you said. The covenant with Abraham 
find its, finds its fulfillment through the covenant with David. Yeah. That, that is, if you get that, that's a huge part today. The covenant with Abraham that all nations are going to be blessed through his offspring finds its fulfillment in the offspring of Abraham called the son of David, mm-hmm. who is going to be the one who fulfills that and brings blessing to all, all peoples who trust in him. Well, and it's also the kingdom, I mean, because he's, he's not just anyone, he's a king, right. which refers to the kingdom of God. Again, uniting these themes of kingdom and covenant, which we've been trying to do. Uh, the kingdom only comes through the covenant, and um, you know the covenant spells out what life in the kingdom is like and, and everything like that. So again, kingdom and covenant, essential. We have to keep those two united uh, because that's what Scripture continually does. That's great. So we're going to close here. Let me just give you a sample for next Sunday. The plan for next Sunday is we're going to spend most of next Sunday on the New Covenant, but we're going to be in the Old Testament, which may sound strange because the Old Testament talks explicitly about the New Covenant. So we're going to look at the theme of David in the New Covenant, which is in Ezekiel. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some stuff in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, that, some of the prophets. And, and we're going to see, wow, there was a lot more in the Old Testament about this than sometimes people realize. And so we will, we will begin to get into the New Testament a little bit, but mainly we're going to be in the prophets next Sunday, and we're going to see a lot about the new covenant in the prophets. Mm -hmm. So Greg, can you close us in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so powerful. It is so amazing. God, what you you have been doing and what you reveal uh, to us in scripture about that, um, Lord, we, we need what this book, the Bible has for us. Lord, we cannot know you, understand you any other way. Um, thank you, Lord, for, for your consistency. Thank you that you keep your promises. Thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord, even promises made so many thousands of years ago, Lord, you bring them to fulfillment and you keep them in just the right time. At just the right time, you bring them to pass. We're thankful uh, for, for the hope that we have in that, that seed of the woman promised in Genesis. Lord, now we see it's going to be the son of David who we know uh, is Jesus of Nazareth. Um, And so, Lord, just help us as we read through our Bibles, as we think about what Scripture is saying. It is about Jesus. Yes, it's about the kingdom. It's about your covenant. And it is about Jesus. Um, And so, Lord, just increase our faith, strengthen our faith, deepen our faith, widen our faith in Christ and all that it means to trust in him. Lord, as we consider your kingdom through your covenant especially what we saw today uh, with David and the covenant that you made with him. God, help us as we go into the main service. Lord, help us just as a, as, as, as a church family to, uh, to join our voices in song and in prayer. And Lord, unite our hearts to uh, hear and receive your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.